Hello and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast. Brought to you by Biotechniques, this show brings you the latest from the frontiers of the life sciences, straight from the people exploring them. I'm your host, Biotechniques Senior Editor, Tristan Free, and in this episode, supported by Oxford Nanopore, we'll be exploring HPV and its associations with cervical cancer, discussing the technologies that can reveal new information about these diseases and their relationship to each other. Coming up, discover the importance of this field of research. Worldwide, there are about 500,000 cases uh, diagnosed each year and almost 300,000 deaths. So among individuals who have a cervix and living in low resource settings or living in poverty, cervical cancer is still the number one cause of death. Get the latest findings in the mechanism of HPV infection. Another exciting finding is that HPV-16, which is the most oncogenic form of HPV, does not always integrate into the human genome. And we found there can be abnormal replication of the episome, creating multimers, deletions, and mutations of the viral genome. And find out how vaccine access inequality is once again putting the most vulnerable at risk. The big problem really is, is uh, delivering the vaccine in the areas of the world that don't have it. We estimated actually in 2020, as many women in, in Africa died of cervical cancer as died of COVID. Joining me for this episode is Senior Investigator Michael Dean and Post-Baccalaureate Fellow Nicole Rossi from the NIH's National Cancer Institute. Michael, Nicole, it's great to have you on the podcast. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So firstly, I, I think I remember when I was about 11 years old, the first rollout of the HPV vaccine throughout my year group. But how big a problem does HPV remain around the world today? Yeah, actually, I do remember when the HPV vaccine came out as well. My parents were trying to figure out when they wanted to you know, get me vaccinated, if they wanted to wait until I was older to make that decision myself and whatnot. But in terms of HPV around the world, HPV causes nearly all cervical cancer. Worldwide, there are about 500,000 cases uh, diagnosed each year and almost 300,000 deaths. So among individuals who have a cervix and living in low resource settings or living in poverty, cervical cancer is still the number one cause of death. However, the HPV vaccine uh, does prevent infections with the HPV types that are responsible for over 90% of cervical cancer, and those are the high-risk HPV types. In fact, the World Health Organization has made a cervical cancer elimination plan where they've made increasing in vaccination a priority. They would like to improve screening to over 90% of people who have a cervix, I believe over over 18. And they also want to provide treatment for precancer and cancer with people who have a cervix in order to prevent this disease. The good news is in the countries that have very active vaccination programs like Australia, dramatic declines in cervical precancer and actually predicting the end of the disease. The NCI is a longstanding vaccine trials in Costa Rica. And from those studies and a similar study in India have shown that one dose of the vaccine may actually be enough. And the NCI is currently carrying out a clinical trial to confirm the efficacy of one dose. And this could obviously dramatically speed up global vaccination. Excellent. So before we get into the real details of your work, let's lay the foundations a little bit. So could you give us a brief explanation of HPV infection and its association with cervical cancer? Sure. So HPV infection begins in the basal epithelium of the cervix. Once the virus actually enters the cervical cells, it replicates in the nucleus as a circular double-stranded DNA called an episome, and this can replicate independently of the host. 
So the virus encodes two powerful oncogenes, which are E6 and E7. And these oncogenes inhibit tumor suppressor genes TP53 and RB1. And this essentially helps promote tumor formation. Metaphorically, HPV throws a wrench in the host DNA's repair process. And this essentially turns off the cell's built-in tumor uh, suppression abilities, which drives cervical cancer progression even further. Now, in tumors, the HPV genome is often integrated into the host genome in the cervical tumor cells. Integration involves the viral DNA embedding itself into the host DNA and thereby using the host replication mechanism and resources to reproduce so that viral DNA replicates alongside host DNA. Now, this is not a normal part of the HPV life cycle, unlike, for example, retroviruses like HIV. But integration is commonly believed to be selected for in the tumor cell to allow for higher expression of the E6 and E7 oncogenes. However, our work has shown that we think another important consequence of integration is to delete and prevent the expression of most of the viral proteins. This impedes the immune system from identifying and eliminating virally infected cells. And can I just ask, why would the virus target those DNA repair or knock out those DNA repair mechanisms in standard, in normal human cells that they're infecting? Is this an offshoot of its intended purpose that is just happening as, a, as, a, as a, an unintended consequence, or is there a targeted method behind this? I mean, part of that's targeted through in, inhibition of the TP53 protein, which is sort of senses damaged DNA and will tell normal cells to either stop replicating or actually you know, commit a cellular suicide or apoptosis. And so HPV sort of shuts that off. Okay, so it's protecting itself. So it's allowing itself to replicate within that cell until it can then burst and spread further. Right. Okay. And so what are then the key goals of your work in trying to combat this association and this this spread? So currently, one of our ongoing projects is to characterize the world's largest set of HPV-positive cervical cancer cell lines. We have assembled a diverse set of cell lines from patients of different genetic backgrounds, HPV types, sublineages, et cetera. And basically, we're using long-read sequencing of DNA and RNA to study the molecular basis of HPV infection and its relationship with cervical cancer. Another key goal of ours is to understand this disease in the low- and middle-income countries where it's so prevalent. So we established a study in Guatemala for patients with advanced cervical cancer and collected tumor tissue, blood, and clinical data. Over 700 participants were enrolled in this study, and we were able to show that the HPV types present in Guatemala are mostly HPV-16, just like in the rest of the world. We also found that PIK3CA is the most frequently mutated cancer driver gene in cervical cancer. More recently, we've been studying a subset of HPV-16 tumors that do not have viral integration, and also an HPV-16 variant or sublineage called D2 that is more carcinogenic and is prevalent in that part of the world. And what are some of the challenges that you're encountering in your work and and in working with HPV in general? So the human and the HPV DNA at these integration sites can be like hundreds of kilobases in length. So one of our challenges has been to develop and apply new technology in order to study larger segments of DNA. Integrations are formed from multiple copies of HPV and flanking human DNA. In fact, one of the proposed mechanisms for the generation of these complex post-viral DNA structures is looping replication at the integration site. And obviously, structures like this are quite hard to resolve. So we have to kind of develop our own methods in order to study 
study these structures. Another big challenge has been access to actual tumor material because advanced cervical cancer, luckily, is a relatively rare disease in the United States. There have been very few studies of cervical tumors from low and middle income countries. And so the tumors that we were able to collect from Guatemala help us to understand the molecular changes that are occurring in cancer tissue isolated directly from patients. So you mentioned those, some of those, those challenges there, the, the looping replication and the, the difficulty in resolving those structures. So what are some of the solutions available to resolve those, those structures and to deal with these challenges? So like I've previously mentioned, we've been using long read sequencing technology, and this has kind of been like our best friend in this whole process. We also couple this with PCR and Sanger sequencing methods to help us understand these complex integration events, uh, which can be quite difficult to resolve. This has also allowed us to assemble very large sequence contigs in order to study both the episomal form and the integrated form of HPV sequences. On the RNA side, HPV genes are expressed via multiple mRNA splicing events. So we've also been using long-read RNA sequencing to understand the structure of HPV and human transcripts. And so having the full-length sequence of mRNAs is greatly aiding in working out the details of how these genes are expressed and, and processed and spliced. We've also recently begun to apply a chromatin interaction analysis method called PORC to study long-range DNA interactions at the three-dimensional level around these integration sites. And so using these technologies, what are some of the most exciting findings that you've been able to discover so far? So one of the most exciting protocols that we've used is an ultra-high molecular weight extraction protocol. This allows us to generate reads of up to 500 kilobases containing HPV sequences, and this allows us to investigate these complex integration events. We've actually discovered in one of our HPV-16 cell lines a previously unknown small fragment of HPV, which has been integrated into chromosome 11. I believe it's only like 150 base pairs in length, so it's quite tiny. But this event resulted in the amplification of the YAP1 oncogene. And in another cell line, HPV-18 cell line, we were able to identify an integration that resulted from this complex looping structure that I mentioned before. And it also rearranges human and HPV fragments. So that's quite interesting to see. Another exciting finding is that HPV-16, which is the most oncogenic form of HPV, does not always integrate into the human genome. And we found there can be abnormal replication of the episome, creating multimers, deletions, and mutations of the viral genome. We've also shown that there can be epigenetic alterations of the episome to increase oncogene expression. All these are mechanisms to allow the virus to turn on the oncogenes, turn off the other viral proteins without integrating. Fascinating. So it takes a different approach to try and shut down those, uh, the defensive mechanisms of the cell. Do we know why that makes it more oncogenic than the other variants? That we're not really sure in, in, in trying to work out. So one of it may be that it sort of has multiple pathways. So HPV 18 and 45, which are the other highly oncogenic forms, they integrate virtually 100% of the time. Where HPV 16 seems to have these multiple approaches that it can expand its episome, mutate its episome, or integrate. And so that, that may just allow more possibilities for, you know, for bad things to happen. And so in terms of the, the tangible impact of your work, so looking to the kind of the translational side of things, how do you see your work being translated into potential therapeutics or more preventative measures to protect against HPV and cervical cancer? 
Yeah, so important to note that in most people, the virus is eliminated within one to two years of infection. This is especially true for HPV types that are not high risk. And this is due to the individual's own T cells that recognize the viral peptides that are displayed on the cell surface and by their HLA proteins. So we have sequenced the human HLA genes in our cell lines to determine the specific viral peptides that are presented to the immune system. And so knowing the relationship between the host immune genes and the viral antigens that are presented could help design better therapeutics for cervical cancer and other cancer patients alike. And so actually, immunotherapy is the most promising approach for treating advanced cervical cancer. And we're currently working with a local commercial partner to use our cell lines to test new immunotherapeutic approaches. And are there any elements of the existing vaccine that could be improved to make it either easier to roll out, but also more effective in just blocking um, HPV infection in the first instance? Not that I know, but one of the important results came out of our division. My colleague Lisa Mirabello showed that there's a type of HPV, HPV 35, common in Africa, and that's not part of the current vaccine. So some of the work that we're doing around the world, figuring out which are the most common forms of HPV causing cancer could help the development of new vaccines. There are so-called therapeutic vaccines, which potentially used to stimulate the immune system to eliminate an existing infection or an existing precancer, and that's another exciting area of development. Okay. And if there was one thing that you could ask for to assist your work in protecting against HPV and cervical cancer, what would it be? Well, first, if everybody who was eligible to get the vaccine would go get vaccinated, and people who have cervix, if they could get screened as often as possible, which I think, you know, once a year at your annual visit, this could help eliminate preventable cancer. In terms of our research in the lab, I would really love if we could obtain a whole genome sequence from as little as 10 nanograms of DNA. This would help us sequence more tumors, especially those with very low amounts of DNA. We have very limited material. And since cervical cancer rates are really high in low resource settings, what we really need is like a $1 to $2 point of care HPV test that could make screening more accessible in any region of the world. And this would result in significant gains in cancer prevention. In our research, we always need more bioinformatic tools to handle all of the data that we're generating. So how big an issue do you think the lack of uptake of the vaccine is at a point of people not taking it when they have the opportunity? Or is it mostly people aren't having it because it's access issues in areas of the world where the vaccine is not available? The big problem really is, is uh, delivery the vaccine in the areas of the world that don't have it. We estimated actually in 2020, as many women in, in Africa died of cervical cancer as died of COVID. So even though we've had this vaccine ever since you were 11, we're behind, the, uh, behind where we need to be in terms of vaccinating the most vulnerable populations. And, and do you think those rollout issues are mostly, is it the cost of the vaccine? Is it the actual logistics of getting it there? What's, what are the kind of the blocks on that? Some of both because the initial protocol required three doses of the vaccine. They now show that two was, was sufficient. If we can really show that one dose given is all you need, then that, that would greatly accelerate because then you could include that vaccine along with other vaccines that are being given, say, to you know, nine to 12-year-old age group. And that, that would help, obviously, lower the cost and, and simplify the logistics. Okay, fantastic. Well, I think that's all of my questions. Is there anything else that you guys would like to add just to round off the episode? 
it's been really exciting, you know, how fast new DNA sequencing technologies are evolving and to be part of that and to be one of the first labs that's actually applying some of these new techniques to the problem of HPV and cervical cancer. It's been a tremendous experience, really. Yeah. And in addition, I hope that um, this kind of opens people's eyes to how prevalent this cancer is around the world, especially in regions that do not have access to, like we said, like the vaccine and other type of screening procedures. So one of our goals here is it's kind of on a global scale to be able to bring that healthcare and this information to other parts of the world that are suffering from cervical cancer. Fantastic. Well, Nicole and Mike, it's been great to speak to you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much. Well, if you've enjoyed this episode and would like to find more like them, you can check out the podcast section of our website over on www.biotechniques.com or follow at CyTristan on Twitter for regular updates and threads on our latest episodes. Thank you for listening and goodbye.